If you got your Bibles, we are in John chapter 9, so if you'll join me uh, in John chapter 9. And our theme this morning is, this is my story. And it is very possible, uh, depending on kind of your background or even uh, what songs you've sung over the years, but this kind of sparks a song in your heart when you hear the words, this is my story. And so that's our theme this morning. I want to I want to begin by uh, talking about a lady by the name of Frances Jane Crosby. Frances Jane Crosby was born in 1820 up in New York. And when she was married, she was she was uh, or excuse me, when she was born, she was born with a with an eye infection, very, very serious eye infection, so much so that uh, just not long after she was born, uh, they had doctors tend to her. And uh, actually, in a in a in malpractice, the doctor uh, did a, uh, a a procedure on her or attempted procedure that did not heal her eyesight, but instead made her permanently blind for the rest of her life that she could never see. It wasn't long after she had this condition diagnosed of kind of terminal blindness that her father passed away, and then her mom. Her name was Mercy, uh, had to find work. And so she worked as a maid. And so the grandmother named Eunice actually loved on her and, and, and poured into her and really trained her up, pouring God's word, God's truth into her life as she grew up. And this, this young lady named Frances, who many know as Fanny, uh, Fanny Crosby uh, enrolled in a school up in New York called the New York Institute for the Blind. And uh, this was such an answer to prayer for her. And as she went, she went initially as a student and then ended up staying over 20 years as a, as a leader and instructor in that school. And it was one day while at that school that a friend of theirs named Phoebe Palmer Knapp was visiting and played a tune on the piano. And asking Fanny what it sounded like, Fanny responded, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And Phoebe and Fanny then continued to sing the melody and write the lyrics of a song that many have sung over, over the years. And it goes like this. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That was a song that was written by Fanny Crosby. A lady who had lived her entire life not being able to see. And yet we see God desired to use her to use her testimony, to use her story in a way that would bring him glory that only God could. And that's what we're going to be reminded of in our text today. And that this main idea is that Jesus Christ works through our lives to bring glory to himself. That God desired to use Fanny's story to bring glory to himself. That God desires to use your story, our story, in a way that brings attention and glory to himself. And as we see in John chapter 9, that God desired to work in and through this blind man's story to bring him glory. 
So as we get started this morning, just getting our bearings a bit, Christ, as I shared a few moments ago, Christ had just brought complete healing to this man who had been blind his entire life. His entire life was darkness. Most scholars believe he was somewhere around the age of 30 when Christ brought healing to his body. Now, when Christ does a miracle, he always has two purposes. One purpose is that it always meets a physical need. Every time you see Christ perform a miracle, he's meeting a physical need. But there's also another purpose that that kind of supersedes that physical healing in that the miracle's purpose is to reveal and to affirm and to, and to, and to prove that Christ is the Messiah, that he is God. So here's this Sabbath day and Jesus and his disciples are, are, are walking out of the temple complex. And Jesus, I love this part about the story. Jesus sees this man when the whole world seems like it's just passing this man in pain and suffering. Jesus sees him. And as we talked about last week and unpacked, Jesus didn't just see him, but Jesus got his hands dirty, brought healing to his life and is going to bring glory to himself through his life. But when the disciples saw this blind man, they were trying to have like a theological discussion around this man. They're like, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy who sinned or his parents sinned that he's been born blind? But as Jesus teaches, they were completely off base. The Bible teaches no such truth. This had nothing to do with sin. Rather, this guy was a miracle that was waiting to happen. And so Christ brings complete healing. And when he does, if you can imagine seeing a blind man that you know been blind for 30 years, the neighbors start talking. And as they're talking, they're like, is this the guy that was blind for up there by the, the beggar by the temple? And, and then you got other neighbors that are like, no, no, it's not him. It, it can't be him. It just looks like him. And what's interesting is this, is nobody expected that beggar to be anything but a beggar for the rest of his life. But God had a different plan for his life. And Jesus brought healing to this man. And so when they see this and they see what's going on, the blind man is like saying, hey, it's me. It's me. And in that moment, they see him and they immediately want to take him to the religious leaders. And so let's look at verse 13. And the first truth, we're going to see a couple truths, a couple realities in the text this morning. We're going to see three realities that are true for every believer's life. And so if you're here in the room today and there's been that time and place where you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, these realities are true. They're true. The first reality is that we can be sure. We can be sure that Jesus changes lives. Jesus changes every life that he touches. Look at verse 13. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. I love that little detail. They brought the man who had formerly been blind. In other words, he he can see. There was a time when he couldn't see, but now he can see. This man is not blind anymore. He's formerly blind. And so they bring him to the religious leaders because they want to hear what they have to say about the situation. But here's what I love about the reality of this life that has been changed. It's his life was, was transformed. 
that his life change was observable and that his life change was undeniable. There's nobody that could look at this 30-ish year old man who once was blind and now can see that that could not see the transformation that had taken part in his life. And what I want to do for just a moment is what we see is a physical truth in this, in this passage that Jesus touched his eyes and brought complete healing. He couldn't see and now he can see. And I want us to come alongside and see what happens to a life when Jesus brings spiritual sight. Because this is what Jesus has done. This is my story as a believer that I once was spiritually blind and now I see. And that when a sinner turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, Jesus changes them. Anybody who is a believer in Christ, a genuine believer, can testify that Christ has changed me. That's what he does. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, all things become new. When Christ changes a life, it is transformational. You can see the transformation. You can see it's observable. It's undeniable when Jesus changes a life. And what happens when a person accepts Christ and is saved? What happens is the Bible tells us that God justifies us. This is, this is just an incredible truth. It's a legal term that means we have been declared innocent, that our sin has been forgiven, that we have been made right with God. We have peace with God. God gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell us and we are legally pure. We are legally clean. We are legally righteous. We are legally justified. But every single one of us who's a believer, that we can know that we know that we are justified and praise the Lord. But we can also testify that when we got saved and God saved us, that we didn't have it all together in that moment. Am I correct? Anybody want to testify to that? I mean, like the moment you got saved, think about that. If, if you're here, whether it was last week or whether it was 80 years ago, I want you to think about the moment you got saved. And what happens is Christ matures us. The Holy Spirit that lives inside of us sanctifies us and teaches us and comforts us and gives us strength to be a witness and leads us and matures us and sanctifies. That word sanctify grows us, matures us. And I was reading a book this past week called Real Life Discipleship by Jim Putnam. And I think it's, it's important. I want to walk through just these four stages of, of, of a believer's maturity. And I want you to listen for where, I want us to listen for where we're at on the journey because we're all on a journey, right? None of us have it together. I took a poll at the eight o'clock service. I'll take a poll right now. Anybody got it together in this room today? Look around. Not a hand is up. Not a hand is up. How many don't have it together in this room today? We're in good company, right? We're in good company. So the first stage of a believer's life is what's known as what he calls a spiritual infant. A spiritual infant. Spiritual infants are characterized by their ignorance, confusion, and dependence. They have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, but they still don't know much about what it means to be a Christian. 
They are in the honeymoon stage of their walk with God and they are often excited about their faith and can come very zealous for Jesus, but they're just beginning to be changed by Christ. It's possible that your passion for Jesus kind of outpaces your, your knowledge of walking with him. And so, so if you think about when you were saved, I want you to think about that, that time and that excitement And so he talks about that as a spiritual infant, but we don't just stay there. I mean, we were all wore diapers at one time. Like we didn't just stay in our diapers. We grew up. And so he talks about that next stage as being a spiritual child from a spiritual infant to a spiritual child. He says, spiritual children are young in the faith yet have grown in many ways. They're learning how to understand biblical concepts and can speak using biblical terms. The word of God is becoming their roadmap for life and their habits and priorities are changing. However, they still are prone to doing things for the wrong reasons. They often do the right thing conditionally as long as it leads to the right destination as they have determined it. And they are often characterized by attitudes such as self-centeredness and idealism. And so it's this idea of, of kind of going to a place, going to a church, going to a small group, the benefit is what it does for us. But like the purpose is what can this do for me? What can this do for me? And so there's, there's a maturity going on. There's an, a spiritual infant, a spiritual child. He talks about the spiritual young adult. Next, he says this, a spiritual young adult, they're action and service oriented, zealous, God-centered, other-centered, mission-minded, but they often don't think in terms of reproducing other disciples, pouring into others so that they can pour into others. They are more likely to attempt to do everything themselves. And so the journey continues of that, that maturity in Christ from an infant to a child to a young adult and ultimately wraps up by introducing the spiritual parent. The spiritual parent, the, parent, the spiritual parent is intentional, strategic, Uh, reproduction-minded, replicate-minded, self-feeding, mission-minded, team-minded, and dependable. They are not just biblically knowledgeable, but they're filled with the Spirit. And so they have a loving attitude and encourage others. And so it looks like this this ultimate maturity comes when now the disciple of Jesus is focused on making other disciples who are going to make other disciples. But that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. All of us can testify. I can see it in my life, each stage of that journey. But here's the thing. Let's put all that to the side. And what we do know is this, Jesus changes lives. And when he saves a person, he changes a person. And it doesn't take long before the world will bring questions Look at verse 14. The Bible says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. I love that it was the Sabbath day. Jesus in the gospels, we see seven miracles that happened on the Sabbath. And Jesus is intentional about everything he does. If you think about it, he is God. He's God in the flesh. He's on a mission. His mission is to seek and save the lost. In just a few months from now, the cross of Calvary, he will, he will be laid out and he will be crucified. Every step along the journey is one filled with purpose and mission and focus. He has a divine timetable. As, it's, as, as everything is happening, he looks at his, 
Um, I would say he looks at his watch. <laughs> he didn't have a watch, a sundial. I don't know what they had in that time, but look at where the sun is. And, and, and like he, he knows like everything is right on time. And so it was intentional that Jesus could have healed this man on any day, but he healed him on the Sabbath day. He healed him on the Sabbath. Why? Because according to the Jewish religious leaders, healing on the Sabbath was absolutely forbidden. Working on the Sabbath, absolutely forbidden. If you spit in the wrong way and it goes on the ground and it makes a furrow in the ground, that is considered work and that is not allowed on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath had been twisted into this, into this thing that it was never intended to be. Jesus tells us he made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. But they are all caught up on the rules. And they are going to begin to question him. So before we jump into the second observation, I, I, I want to just revisit one more time. A reality of a believer is this. We can be sure Jesus changes lives. And I say this, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. And I say it with as much love and grace and burden as I have. And that is this. If there's been no change in your life, there's been no Jesus in your life. Jesus changes us. We can be sure of that. But a second reality is that we must be ready. We must be ready. Jesus wants to use your story to bring him glory. Look at verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, this guy had to know if you've been blind for 30 years of your life and now you can see, you're going to get questions. <laughs> you're going to get questions. The neighbors are watching him. They've got questions. They want to go to the religious leaders because they know they're going to have questions. And that's what happens when your life is transformed and it's observable and it's undeniable. It will always lead to questions. And so they are asking questions, but they are more like interrogators. They are not open-minded. They are not hungering for the truth. They have made up their mind that Jesus is a problem for them. And that if anybody submits or gives their life to Jesus, then they've got a problem with them too. And the telltale sign that this, is a, this, this conversation is not going to be a fruitful one is because, as I mentioned, the law for them, the law was way more important than love. And policy was more important than people. And that is a danger zone. When people become less important than a policy, there is a problem. And so this, I love, I love the blind man that, that in, this, in this questioning, he was so ready. He was ready. He didn't cower. You don't see him kind of stretching like, okay, if they start interrogating me, asking questions, like, what am I going to say? And like, not like he was ready. He had courage. He had boldness. And his story was simple. I was blind. I went to the wash. I went to the, to the pool. And now I see. And I love the simplicity of his story. And then nobody could tell him any different. <laughs> nobody could tell him any different. Now we don't find ourselves in a religious temple with religious leaders who are interrogating us, wanting our worst. But I do think there is a principle see for our lives today. And that is this, when you live life for the glory of God and you see people the way Jesus saw people, 
and you get your hands dirty the way Jesus got his hands dirty and you live life in such a way that you invest in others, it is observably different than the world. You will begin to get questions asked. Why? What happened? What's going on? And it can happen as simple as the fact that in your workplace, there's somebody that you know that's sick and hasn't been feeling well, and you go and you take them a meal. Or you happen to know that somebody is sitting in a hospital waiting room right now, and you have the margin and the opportunity to be able to go and to spend some time and to visit with them. The question will come, why? It can be as simple as remembering somebody's birthday and shooting them a call and letting them know that you love them. Like, it's just whatever that looks like. And can I just say this? And I mentioned this uh, I, meant, I actually meant to mention this last week, but, but like there are so many needs and it, we can be overwhelmed because we want to fix it all. Like we want to do, we want to do for all. But I heard a, a freeing statement um, that was shared. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. I'm not saying do only, only invest in one, but I'm just saying it becomes so overwhelming that you just don't know where to start. But it begins with seeing people the way Jesus saw people. And when those questions come, you have an opportunity to share your story. So this transformed life is ready to speak up. He's ready to speak up. But the interrogation continues. Look at verse four, uh, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, How can a man who is a sinner... Do such signs. And there was a division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. Now it's important for this, for this man who was formerly blind, he's on a journey. He has not fully surrendered his heart and life to Jesus yet. He's going to, and we're going to see it next week. But what we do see is his understanding of who Jesus is, is growing. It's growing from that first interaction to processing and discerning what Jesus has done in his life. And so he is processing, he's growing. And in this testimony, he is just as simple and clear and compelling as possible that he is a prophet. A prophet was one sent from God and he might not know everything, but he knows that he has been sent from God. He knows this. He knows it. Now the Pharisees are like, well, what do you do with that? You can almost feel their wheels turning. And so, so they're not getting much traction with him. So they're going to call in his parents. But before they call in his parents, I want to make one more observation. The encouragement is that we are sure. We're sure that Jesus changes lives. We know that too is we are ready that we would be ready that Jesus wants to use your story to bring him glory. But a third is that we must be prepared that in this life there will be suffering. Be prepared. What this man who now has sight is about to experience is persecution. He suffered for years and years and years. The first 30 years of his life, he suffered through the pain of blindness. His complete world was darkness. And now he can see Jesus brought sight. But now the pain of suffering is is transforming. It's changing to the pain of persecution. 
And the persecution is coming from the least likely of sources, at least from my perspective, and that is his own parents. Let's look at verse 18. The interrogation continues. The Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and that he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? And now then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. In, in preparing for this message, this was one of the hardest realities to get my head and heart around. Because evidently, mom and dad are known. Mom and dad are in the picture. But evidently, somewhere along the way, they rejected their son. He has spent his days begging at the temple. He is a blind beggar and his parents have rejected him. And now his parents have been called in to interrogate them about their own son. And what is heartbreaking is that these parents take, as far as we see in the text, there is no celebration that their son that was blind can now see. That in this moment where you would think after 30 years, their son can finally see what do you see in them? They see you see them throwing their son under the bus, that they're rejecting him. They're trying to cover for themselves. Why? Because they are fearful. They are fearful. They are absolutely rejecting him, not even celebrating what has gone on in his life. Verse 22, the disciple John gives us a little more detail. It says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. And for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. To be, to be kicked out of the synagogue, meant to be excommunicated, meant to be disfellowshipped, meant to live under a curse, to be socially ostracized, that this was no doubt to be, to be cut off from the synagogue would mean you will likely lose your job. It means you will likely lose your family. You will use your sense of community, your place of belonging. You, it's taken all away if you confess Jesus. And in this moment, where the parents, at least from our perspective, should have embraced their son, should have celebrated the fact that he can see, should stand with their son. They are absolutely terrified of man. They're scared. How many of us, when the Holy Spirit has been compelling us, nudging us, guiding us to take that bold step, to speak a word of encouragement, to speak up, for the gospel of Jesus, but yet for fear of what a man may say, we, we just lower our voice. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare. For our hunters in the room, that's a hunting term. It's a trap. It's used to paralyze. It says the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so therefore his parents said to him, he's of age, ask him. 
He's of age, ask him. The interrogation continues. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That give glory to God, that was like a Jewish way of swearing in. It's like another way of saying, as God is my witness. And so they say, as God is your witness, they say, we know this man's a sinner. And do you hear that? Like he hasn't even, they haven't asked him a a question yet. They're just saying, um, basically like, you'll be smart if you do what we tell you to do right now. You would be really smart if you agree with us about what we say about Jesus right now. And they're trying to impose their will and to intimidate this formerly blind beggar. In verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> I love this. So remember this, this, this formerly blind beggar is growing in his understanding of who Jesus is. He doesn't know everything about Jesus right now. He just knows he is from God of God. And now he once was blind and now he can see like, he's like, y'all are debating about sin. And if he sinned or not, like, I don't know about all that. Here's what I know. This one thing I do know, I once was blind, but now I see. What a powerful testimony. What a powerful story. He didn't go into like an hour long description about how horrible his life was for 30 years. How challenging. He just simply said, I once was blind, but now I see. Let this testimony encourage us as we share our faith. What is our life like before Christ? What is our story of repenting and trusting in Jesus? And how has our life been changed? This this blind, formerly blind beggar sums it all up. And so the encouragement for us in here is that God wants to use your story. Even in the midst of suffering, he wants to use your story and your testimony to bring him glory. So in this moment, again, the wheels are spinning The Pharisees are running out of ammunition. What are they going to do? They start asking him the same questions. There's a proverb that says, as a dog returns to his vomit, they're just going back to the same set of questions. Verse 26, they said to him, well, what did he do to you? They just asked him that. (laughs) They just asked him that a while ago. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? It's okay to laugh (laughs) because you can hear the sarcasm, right? I love the Bible because there's real people in it. (laughs) You know, this man has been changed. Uh, but like, even he is like having it, like his temper is starting to like, I've had enough. His impatience is growing. The sarcasm is kicking in. What are you on? You're asking so many questions. You want to be his disciple too? Verse 28. And then they reviled him. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, they wouldn't even say the name of Jesus. They hated Jesus so badly, they wouldn't even say his name. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. To which I would say, they know where he comes from. They they don't want to know where he comes from. 
Verse 30, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. (laughs) This has never been done in the history of the world. And you're just trying to dismiss it. He goes on to say in verse 31, the, the formerly blind beggar says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, what he's saying is religious leaders, you're absolutely right. A, 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 a sinner uh, could never do what just happened. You're right. Jesus, because he's of God, he has the power and the authority to do what he did to me. Communicating that obviously God had heard Jesus and that God had given him the power and that he will learn he is God and has all the power of the world. And so what do they do? They have no more ammunition They can't look at this man and say, well, you're still blind. They can't do that. Like they have no more like, okay, so what are we going to, and what do we see in our world? When, when the facts are the facts and anger is involved and the temperature gets hot, personal attacks kick in, personal attacks kick in. And so in this setting, what do they say in verse 34? They answered him, well, you were born in utter sin and you teach us. And they cast him out. Just like that. Just like that. In a formal act, they disfellowship him. They dissynagogue him. In that moment, he is cut off from community. He is cut off from his culture. He was a beggar, did not have a job. No doubt his family has already again rejected him. That he has nobody. He has been pushed out and been pushed away. And they kicked him out. And there's a truth that I think that's important for us to see as we wrap up this morning. And that is this. Is when you repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in him and him alone. His perfect life. His death. His burial, His resurrection, that we respond to His grace, that we experience His grace and His forgiveness, that we have peace with Him, that He places His Holy Spirit to indwell us, to live within us, to guide us and mold us and mature us. That if anybody along the way ever said, put your faith and trust in Jesus and all your troubles will go away, that is absolutely false. It's not true. Even Jesus said, Don't be surprised if they hate you because of me. That in this world, there will be tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world, is what he said. I love what Paul says over in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That the difficulties that we encounter on this earth can't compare to the future joy that is coming So the encouragement is this, is the Bible teaches us that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. But joy in his presence and earthly joy are two very different things. But he promises joy for all of those who rest in his presence. 
And so we can be sure Jesus changes lives. He changes lives. That we must be ready as believers. That as we live our lives in a dark world, that light will shine and somebody may ask you why your light is so bright. Or why did you do this? Or why did you do that? It's open doors to be able to share the gospel that we would be ready. That we don't have to worry about, oh, what am I going to say? I said, I once was blind, but now I see. Like that's, that's his story. That's his story. But that we would also be prepared because of the, the, the suffering and, and persecution that, that may come. That may come. In our country, we may, we may arrive at the place where Scripture is hate language. That we don't know what's in store, but we know who holds the future, right? We know who holds the future. But as we're here this morning, here's how I'd like to wrap up. I'd like us to wrap up with a time of praying for the persecuted church. As we gather in freedom, as we gather in this gymnasium, as we gather in the the comfort of the padded chairs and the not so much comfort of the metal chairs, um, we gather in freedom without fear of what may happen to us because we're here. And so I just want to encourage us to pray for the persecuted church. That over the past year, there are currently estimated around 360 million Christians that are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination for believing the truth of the gospel. That over this past year, these are that we know of that are documented. 5,898 Christians who were martyred for their faith in Jesus. That there were approximately 5,110 churches and Christian buildings that were attacked. That there have been 4,765, this is known cases, 4,765 believers who have been detained by trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And these thousands and thousands and the millions of numbers all represent souls who, as we gather, are under and living in the persecuted church. So here's what I'd like to do. I want us to just take a little prayer time. And however you feel led, that we would take a little bit of time and pray for our brothers and sisters who have been disfellowshipped, who have been dissynagogued. If the context of this story who have lost their family, lost their jobs, lost their community, lost their national identity, and yet for many are meeting and gathering in fear for their life. So let's pray and then we'll end our time with a hymn. All right, let's pray. And as you pray, if you don't know where to start, pray for God's presence. Pray for God's comfort. Pray for open doors to share the gospel. Pray that they would love the ones that persecute them. Pray for boldness. Pray for courage. Pray that they would continue to mature in their faith. Pray for wisdom. 
Pray for joy. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And pray that they will cling to the Word, to the promises of Scripture. I invite you to now pray for the persecuted church. Father, we pause for a moment to intercede for our brothers and our sisters. Those that are spread out all across the globe. And God, as we're reminded in this story that to place your faith and trust in Jesus comes at a great cost. For some, that cost looks different than others. But Father, you are clear. If anyone desires to follow you, there is a taking up of the cross and to follow daily. So God, as we live as lights, as a city on a hill in a dark world, God, may we be sure, we be sure, God, you change lives. You've changed our lives as believers. We're a new creation. But God, not only that, that we are ready that we are ready with courage and boldness and loving a way to share your truth, that we are prepared. And so we pray, we pray for the persecuted church. And God, as we reflect on this text, your Holy Spirit is big and is strong and is powerful enough to God, take your living word that is active and sharper than any double-edged sword and pierce our heart divide between soul and spirit and God speak to us what you are calling us to whatever that looks like God may we be marked by courageous obedience to whatever it is that you have for us so God we love you we praise you in Jesus name amen I want to invite you to stand with me and we're going to sing a song I mentioned uh introduce us to a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby and uh Miss Fanny lived her entire life without being able to see. Uh, it's, it's recorded that she wrote somewhere between uh, 5,000 hymns and poems that we have sung, sung through uh, our churches for years. But there's one song that we kind of spoke through, and that was that this is my story, this is my song, that song of blessed assurance. And so I want us to sing that together as a song of response. We'll have pastors here who would love to pray over you, encourage you. If you're here and you're like, you know what? I need to begin a relationship with Jesus. Please, we would love to pray with you, encourage you. If you're like, I just need to have somebody pray over me. We would love to pray over you. Whatever that looks like, just being obedient and sensitive. 
to the Spirit. But listen to what Miss Fanny said. She said this. She said, if I had a choice, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. That's an intimacy. That is a depth. And so that was her story. And it's the song of the redeemed. So let's worship the Lord in this time.